Hi everyone, this is Donnie from Oxus. Today what we're going to do is we're going to get into uh, talking about the recent school shootings and a couple of things that we've been dealing with in this area. But in particular, what I want to do is talk about the history of the legislation that we are dealing with at this point. Um, in particular, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the Gun-Free Schools Act of 1990, uh, where it came from, who proposed it, what it was meant to do, and what we've seen it actually do. Um, and then we're going to break it down and talk a little about what just happened at the Uval uh, shooting uh, here in Texas uh, last week. And uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to go and we're going to break into all this stuff and talk a little bit about the background of these different uh, events. And hopefully what we'll do is we'll try to educate everyone uh, as best we can on how these situations occur, what the background is. And um, ultimately my goal is not so much to make any particular proposal, rather it is just to uh, talk about what works and what doesn't. And hopefully this will be enlightening and helpful uh, as we go throughout the next few weeks um, with the ensuing debate that always occurs after one of these such events. Before we get too far into it, I just want to lay out uh, a couple of uh, baseline things. So the Gun-Free Schools Act was first proposed in 1990 um, by Wisconsin Senator Herb Cole um, and Arizona Senator Dennis DeConcini, is my guess, De, De Con, it's D-E-C-O-N-C-I-N-I, so I'm, I'm guessing it's DeConcini. De but that's my guess. Um, both of them are uh, were Democratic senators, and uh, they proposed the Gun-Free Schools Act in 1990, uh, and it was passed, and it was actually signed by H.W. Uh, Bush. So um, what we're talking about when we get into this is the, the idea behind the act was to make it illegal for anyone to carry a firearm within 1,000 feet of a school. Um, basically what it did was if you were not a law enforcement officer uh, who uh, had a specific reason for being there, um, then you were it was a illegal act to carry a firearm onto the premises of the school. didn't really matter who you were other than a law, a law enforcement official. So what that did was that created this uh, zone that we uh, deal with to this day. But eventually what actually happened is that by 1994, um, it was actually struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional because it was saying that it violated the Second Amendment rights um, of, uh, of the citizens per the states. Now, what they did was they actually found a workaround. So in 1994, it actually... By the time this happened, it was 1985, uh, the, though the Guns-Free Schools Act had been uh, repealed by, uh, by act of the Supreme Court, they actually took what was the 1994 uh, act and then they put it into the, uh, what was called the, second, the Elementary Secondary Education Act of 1965. So they took that, um, that uh, initial act and then amended it with many of the provisions that was originally in the Gun-Free School Zones Act, um, but they uh, they kind of, so they kind of did a little bit under the table in that they packaged it in with the uh, that act that had already been passed, and they just amended it to that, but it had very much a similar application as the original Gun-Free Schools Act of 1990 did. Now, um, basically what we're looking at here is, the idea is that if we ban firearms uh, or other forms of weaponry, whether it's knives or whatnot, from the premises of the schools, ideally what that would do is that would uh, create less use of them in those areas. 
right? Now, here's the thing. Um, when we're talking about a type of situation like this where we have a, uh, a, a, a premises, right, that has a, uh, a largely vulnerable group of people there, um, you also you run into these situations where you have a lot of people coming from various diverse backgrounds showing up at these locations, uh, being there for an extended period of time, multiple days a week, and then going back to their own respective zones. And just that in and of itself creates a uh, an interest in uh, how do we get these people to uh, to interact in a good way. Now, by and large everything works out um the and by and large we don't have uh, a uh problems in the vast majority of schools um at least on a uh, on a uh deadly shooting level but what we've been seeing in the last few years is we have seen an increase in the particular types of shootings regarding schools. And this is what I'm speaking of is particularly post-2017, um, but we saw a rapid increase of them in the last uh, in the last two years in particular. From 2020-2021, uh, we saw a whole lot more violence occurring in schools. And so what we're trying to do is we're really trying to break down is uh, why this is happening um, and where this comes from. Now, here's the thing. If... Uh, and this is one of the things that I, I always question when it comes to trying to legislate anything that uh, tries to restrict criminal activity. Uh, you can penalize a criminal, but as far as putting in ordinances to try to prevent the criminality from occurring, it's it's one of those things where if it's the, if that law is the only thing that is between the criminal and doing the criminal act, it's questionable as to its effectiveness. So let me put it this way. If someone, uh, if you put in this law that's designed to make it illegal for someone to bring a firearm onto a school premises, but the whole idea of them bringing the firearm onto the school premises is to cause danger to other students, um, perhaps with malice intent or otherwise, it, they're not going to care if it's illegal for them to bring a firearm onto the premises of the school. So when they passed this law, um, the idea was that it would prevent, uh, hopefully prevent more school shootings and uh, prevent other uh, types of thing, uh, other types of um, of malice uh, or uh, any type of other violent or dangerous threats occurring at schools. And so I believe it's actually well intentioned and uh, wasn't was designed to uh, prevent and protect the prevent bad actions and and to protect the students who are at the schools as well as the teachers and other things. Now, if we look at the history prior to when this law was passed, all the way from the past forty years, um, there were incidents that included uh, things such as uh, shootings and that sort of thing, but they were very rare, very far between, and a lot of times they had more to do with the faculty than they did with the students. Um, it usually wasn't uh, it what it, what we saw more frequently in the past. It was uh, stuff where a student would become uh, belligerent or have a problem with a particular administrator, a teacher, um, a, a principal, something like that, and then they would go after that particular person. Um, and that was something we did see in the past, prior to 1990. But it was still very, it was very rare. And the instances of actual mass shootings, which as defined by the FBI, means that uh, it is somebody who, or it's an incident where four or more people are injured or killed uh, via shooting. And so when we look at this type of a situation, we've really seen this in the last 20 years, really since Columbine, 
um, we've where we've seen this uh, uptick. Now, uh, generally speaking, if you look at the last 20 years from like 2000 to 2021, um, with the latest statistics, there's it's really pretty steady, pretty even um, as far as injuries uh, and and uh, deaths per year. But it spikes when we get to, to about 2018, and uh, we see this increased level of violence that's occurring. Now, the thing is that when I consider why this could be, um, I look at different things like political unrest. I look at different things about uh, how uh, schools are becoming more and more militaristic, um, more militarized, uh, They and how they the intentions of who might be, you know, school administrators or people who are trying to protect schools are turning them more and more into uh, really prisons rather than actual places of learning. Um, We've seen that in the last few years, many schools have started uh, forcing students to use clear backpacks, um, which is a little bit questionable as to Fourth Amendment rights, but they uh, clear backpacks so that they can see what's within each uh, student's backpacks. Um, we've had uh, differences in how they use um, in certain states. They, they allow for um, the, for uh, metal detectors at the doors of the buildings. Not all uh, states allow that, but it is one thing that's been used. With the, uh, with the Gun Free Schools Act, once it was uh, re- repealed and then enforced under the, um, under the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, um, it then eventually evolved into what's called the no left no child left behind act now with that act in place um, what it does is the in even though it's what it does is effectively whereas the the difference between the gun free schools act and the no child left behind act is that uh, the gun free schools act made it illegal to carry a firearm within 100 or I'm sorry within 1000 feet of a school with the no child left behind act since the no, the gun free schools act was repealed the no child left behind act instead attacks public schools on the funding level so what it does it says uh, and this is directed from findlaw.com um, it it instituted a quote zero tolerance policy on weapons uh, a, as a requirement, it's a requirement for the, pub, for the public schools to have a zero tolerance policy for weapons on the school campus in order to receive federal funding. So what it did is it said, essentially, well, we can't go through and say that it's illegal federally, on a federal level, to, uh, to, take, uh, to make, make it a, uh, federally illegal to carry a firearm onto the campus of the school. We can't do that. So what we're going to do is we're just going to take this, the Department of Education, and we're going to weaponize the administrative side of this, and we're going to say, well, we won't give you federal funding unless you enforce a zero weapons policy. So basically what that did is that that, uh, and then since then, there have been other court trials about this, and that's that law has been upheld by, uh, by the Supreme Court and in lower courts. And so essentially what they did was it was just kind of a workaround. It, it's a, a similar thing to it. Basically, it's a law that achieves a similar goal um, by, tech, by attacking the bank book rather than just outright uh, banning weapons on uh, school premises. So what that does is that means that uh, schools, public schools, can't receive funding from the federal government unless they enforce this policy, but it still gives the states a little bit more wiggle room than the original uh, Gun-Free Schools Act of 1990 does. So, for example, in my state uh, in which I live, Missouri, 
um, we have uh, a, a interesting way in which our laws work as far as permitted concealed carry holders. So the state of Missouri recognizes uh, if you take a class that's a, uh, it's actually a class that's, uh, that's enforced by the state. It's an eight-hour course. Um, I'm actually an instructor. Who so I'm able to actually train other students, uh, and uh, if I sign off on their certificate saying that they've completed this eight-hour class, then they can take it to the sheriff's office, where the sheriff's office then goes through and fingerprints them and takes all their records and does a background check and all of that stuff. And then if the sheriff's office uh, or the sheriff in particular signs off on it, then uh, anybody who goes to this class can get what's called a concealed carry permit. Now, that's a whole nother side of law that we don't really have time to get into today. But essentially what that means, uh, if you get a permit in the state of Missouri, it means you can conceal carry um, with greater protections than if you didn't. Because uh, Missouri is also uh, what's called a constitutional carry state, which means that you, if you're legally able to purchase a firearm, which means passing a background check and that sort of thing, if you can legally purchase a background, you don't have a felony that prevents you from owning a firearm or anything like that. Um, then you are able to carry it. The problem is with that is that if you do that, there's essentially zero uh, protections for you if anything were to happen. Uh, so, uh, for example, in the state of Missouri, if you have a concealed carry permit and you are driving through a school zone, right? So um, you just drive past a school. You may not even have an affiliation with the school, but you drive within a thousand feet of the school because it's the road that goes right by it. And you get pulled over by a law enforcement officer for speeding or some other unrelated thing. If you have a uh, concealed carry permit, what it does, it, ma it makes it so that if your firearm is in the vehicle, it's not a criminal offense to have it. If you don't have a concealed carry permit and you get pulled over in a school zone, then it could become more of an issue for you um, because of the ordinances of the school. Now, the thing is, is that uh, is that what a concealed carry permit does is just is it helps reduce your liability because it shows that you're an educated citizen who understands a basic idea of how the law works and uh, what your uh, rights and privileges are and what they aren't as well. And so it will basically, if anything happens, it takes what uh, could be a misdemeanor or could be a felony and helps you to, uh, in some cases, downgrade your liability. It has nothing to do with saying like, oh yeah, I have a license to do this. I, it does not prevent you uh, from having uh, any other types of prosecution or anything like that. There are no guarantees. All it does is it just says, hey, I'm an educated person, and so uh, I'm likely to uh, act in a responsible manner, and it helps you to educate yourself. And that way, when, uh, when you end up in, if you end up in a situation such as being pulled over in a school zone or uh, any other situation like that, there's also limitations on uh, event venues. So if you go to a place that has above 5,000 uh, seats in it, um, in Missouri, you're, if you don't have a concealed carry permit, you're not allowed to carry into those places. It can be a misdemeanor if it has a seating uh, area of 5,000 or more. Uh, if you have a concealed carry permit, then uh, the, the law states that you will be asked to leave. Um, and if you leave then, uh, on the first, by, uh, the first time you're asked, then uh, there will be no citation. There, it becomes a, a non-legal issue. 
if you continue to resist, then uh, you get a certain number of warnings. It's kind of a three strikes thing. If you get three strikes, then it can become a bigger issue. But uh, the first time you get a warning rather than becoming a thing where you could be prosecuted for a misdemeanor, whereas if you do constitutional carry, which means that you have no concealed carry permit, uh, then you're liable immediately. So um, when we're talking about the, the way that the Gun-Free School Zones Act uh, worked in comparison to what we have on the No Child Left Behind Act is that, it just, it, is that the No Child Left Behind Act targeted the public schools to get them to enforce these zero weapons policies, and then, uh, but it allowed the states to have more, um, more flexibility within that. It's just that it, uh, it's, it's strongly enforced in the schools because if they don't enforce it, then they lose their funding. So that's kind of a, a, a hairy issue uh, that leaves these schools in kind of a gray area. Now, certain states, um, Missouri is one that is very flexible. Um, as far as states go, our uh, firearms laws and concealed carry laws and all that stuff is very lenient compared to other states such as like Illinois, California, New York, New Jersey, uh, Vermont, other places like that that are much more restrictive. Um, and so in certain states that are not like Missouri, um, they do have outright uh, gun laws that have been enforced on a state level to say that uh, it is illegal for you to carry a firearm within a school zone. So it basically took what was the Gun Free Schools Act and then passed it on a statewide level rather than a federal level. And so there are other states that have those types of issues going on, but Missouri is not one of them. Missouri has much more flexibility because of the concealed carry uh, laws and because of the, the generally red-leaning nature of the state. So um, when we talk about the actual situation that just happened, um, currently the numbers I'm seeing is that we have t- between 21 and 23 uh, dead. Um, very unfortunate. And uh, we have three teachers uh, of those uh, dead of those uh, 21, 23 people. Um, the rest were students. What it appears happened is that the shooter um, entered the school and uh, began this incident where he ended up barricading himself into a uh, into a, a schoolroom with uh, all of the students and teachers who eventually uh, who whom he eventually killed. And that the standoff uh, went for over an hour because the uh, the local police department decided not to enter the school. Now, that is another whole nother debate that goes all the way back to Columbine because Columbine was also one of those situations where um, the police focused on containment rather than entering immediately. And in most states now, it is the case where uh, the natural policy of the police departments is to enter immediately rather than try to open a staging area. But back in Columbine, that was not the, the express policy of the police departments. If there was a mass shooting going on, the policy at the time was to set up a containment area and then try to negotiate and then try to enter the premises. But um, since then, we found out at Columbine that didn't work out so well, and once again, that policy did not work out well this time. Now, I've been seeing other things uh, floating around saying that uh, the uh, Border Patrol uh, showed up after the local police and against the local police's uh, recommendations or orders, um, they entered the premises anyway, uh, and that was when the shooter was eventually eliminated, um, but I believe he actually committed suicide. But the pressure that was given put presented by the Border Patrol what was uh, what eventually um, led to the, uh, the end of this incident. Now, um, really, the one guy in particular, uh, his name's Jacob Alvarado, and uh, he... 
uh, has been kind of like the guy in the who who really was the hero of the situation, aside from all the administrators and teachers who uh, acted in uh, and in such a way as to protect the students. But he was one of the guys who really made a difference. Now he is actually a uh, a uh, border patrol Texas border patrol agent, um, but at the time he was off duty and he was actually getting his haircut. Now the story is, uh, if you haven't already read it already, is that his wife and daughter. Uh, attend the school, uh, Rob Elementary, and his wife sent him a text message saying that there's a shooter in the building and help. And he was just sitting down for his haircut reportedly. And when he got the text message, he got up from the from the barber's chair uh, and took his barber's shotgun. And uh, he and the barber both immediately embarked on their way to the school. Now, he was able to get there in time to actually enter the building and engage the shooter. Uh, and and by doing so, was able to uh, help contain him and prevent him from doing any more further damage uh, than he'd already done. Now, uh, Jace, uh, Jacob uh, sustained some injuries. Uh, he actually, there's a, a video or actually an image that was surfaced by the Washington Examiner uh, at which you can see that he was actually uh, very nearly killed. He had a, uh, a bullet wound that scraped the top of his head. And so you can see that he had took some stitches, but he uh, very, very narrowly by like not even centimeters uh, avoided some serious head trauma. Um, and that he was immensely fortunate that uh, uh, apparently he was uh he took that uh that that kind of um that that glancing blow from the bullet and then he also took some shrapnel in the leg but there was nothing that was uh that was critically uh injured so he's extremely fortunate um and uh apparently and so he but he was there to go and suppress the threat so what we think about this is that uh criminals are going to break laws that's what they do that's why they're criminals um, and so when we put in a law that is not proactive, but rather reactive, that says, well, you can't bring a firearm onto the, onto the school premises, um, or we have a zero weapons policy, what that means is that the only people who end up being disabled from protecting themselves are the ones who actually follow the law. And that's kind of the point is that the people who follow the law will follow the law, but the people who don't won't. And so it seems kind of counterintuitive to me to, uh, to make people who are the law followers not have firearms, but then allow the people who are willing to break the law to have them because there's no other sense of recourse. Um, it calls to mind, this might be a little bit gruesome, but it crawls to mind the scene from Indiana Jones. Um, I think it's in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, but um, there's a scene where Indiana Jones is, uh, he's he's walking out there and there's this guy who shows up and he's got um, all of his like black robes on and stuff like that. And he's got two swords and he points out Indiana Jones and he takes his swords and goes, ha ah, ha ha, you know, and swings his swords all around showing off. And then, uh, and then Indiana Jones just pulls out his handgun, shoots him from a distance before the guy can get close. And, uh, that's the end of that. Um, it, it you know, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. And when you have this type of uh, zero tolerance policy at schools for, uh, any sort of defensive weaponry, uh, it, it creates this situation where you're, you're not even bringing a knife to a, this gunfight. And so when we think about this, there's a lot of different ways we can talk about this. But um, in particular, let's just talk a little bit about Uvald as a place. So um, Uvald is a very small city with a population of about 16,000 people. Um, that's tiny. Um, even my little suburb that I live in uh, is is in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, and it's a very small, pars- like sparsely 
uh, sparsely populated compared to some places, but Uvalde is very, very small. Um, when we look at the overall statistics nationally of, um, of school security, uh, there's some stuff that's really, um, really telling and a, a little bit scary as far as how security is done at these schools and what the current situation is. So, um, from the, this is directly from the national, let me pull it up here. I want to make sure I got the right, I tell you the right place that I got this from. So this is from the national center for education statistics. Um, and, uh, basically what they do is they just collect statistics on schools and I, I found some really crazy stuff. So, um, based on the seven, the years, 2017 and 2018, um, the way that they did this is they actually sent out polls to various school administrators, um, being principals and, uh, other administrators beyond the principal. Um, but people who are in, uh, in places of, of influence within schools nationally. And they collected this, 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 uh, this information now by their own self admission, they came out with some really crazy findings. They're just kind of buried on the site and I'll link it in the description for this podcast. They found that 53.3% of schools reported having no law enforcement fire, uh, no law enforcement officers who are armed on the premises of the school. This is across all different levels of school. So when you look at the uh, actual statistics, um, they're talking about primary, middle schools, high schools, and uh, then various other combined schools. Um, They're talking about all the different population sizes. They're talking about everywhere. So if they talk about um, basically all schools in general, this is where it roughly comes out to is about is that slightly over 50% of schools have no law enforcement on the campus who are armed. And here's the real kicker. Okay, so we can excuse like in certain places not having an actual law enforcement presence because some schools don't have the funding to handle that. On top of that, um, police departments often have a lot more to do than just sit around and be on guard, right? It's not their job. Their job is law enforcement, which means that they have to go to wherever law needs to be enforced. And so if you have a school, which is kind of a... um, kind of a place where uh, it's stationary, there's not uh, an active thing going on, they have other things they need to attend to. So if we look at, okay, well, let's talk about actual security staff. So uh, in that same uh, release of statistics uh, from 2017 2018, these same people also reported that there is not, that uh, 38.6% of schools have no no, do not report having one or more security staff. In particular, let me go and uh, read the actual phrasing of it. So it says, um, the percent of schools with one or more security staff uh, comes out to being uh, about 61.4%. So the, the places that have one or more is a little over 60% of schools have one or more security staff uh, on campus. That means that nearly a third of schools in the United States do not have any security staff. And so when we look at this, like we even think about like what happened at uh, Parkland back in 2018. In Parkland, they had one guy who was assigned to be there, um, and he performed with questionable um, he performed in a questionable manner during that time. And, uh, but when we look at this, you know, we have one security staff for an entire school of hundreds, could be thousands of students. And uh, a third of these schools don't have anybody. 
And so when we think about this, like teachers, a lot of teachers uh, in, uh, in, uh, aren't allowed to carry firearms because of the no weapons policy on the school, on the school premises. Um, they have other, and so you have teachers who aren't allowed to be armed. You have students who aren't allowed to be armed. And you have administrators who also call, kind of fall into that, uh, that area because under most of these, uh, these no weapons policies as enforced by the No Child Left Behind Act, it means that nobody is allowed to legally carry on a church, or I'm sorry, on a school premises. Now, churches are a whole other issue that are, uh, it's actually kind of related, but um, aside from the point right now. So we have uh, basically a third of the schools, uh, close to 40% of schools, uh, completely caught with their pants down with no security staff. And then 53.3% have no uh, law enforcement presence. So the thing is that I'm saying here is just that we have a massive issue with security. We have nobody who's allowed to be armed. And then we ha- and then the places where even they might have the ability to be armed or they might have somebody, it's usually far understaffed. You only have one person, um, sometimes a few more than that, but usually it's very minimal. And so the thing is, is we run into this issue where you can have all the defensive measures you want. You can use metal detectors. You can use clear backpacks. You can use all these things. But the problem is what happens when a shooter starts shooting uh and and the thing and if you look at the uh how these events usually resolve um this is from 2000 to 2013 there was another another study that was uh that was taken uh that talked about um how these different shootings normally resolve themselves Here's a couple of quotes. 40% of mass shooters and this is not just specifically with uh, regard to schools this is just in general mass shooters being defined by the FBI as any situation where there's four or more deaths, 40% of mass shooters die by suicide. When we take that to talking about schools, it's even more than that. It's 70%. So 70% of school shooters die by suicide. They're not stopped by any other sort of uh, outside force. In the other, uh, and, and 55% of that time, the event, the shooting itself, is over before the police arrive. So let's think about this. So um, we, when you have a, a police presence on the school, that's one thing. But if you don't have an, a significant police presence on the, the school, which we just talked about is not likely, it takes time for them to be able to arrive. Um, in certain shootings, uh, they, they've been there within 90 seconds. But the thing is, is that it still takes them time to get there. And 90 seconds is a lot of time for somebody to start shooting. Um, we look at what just happened in Whitechapel um, in, at the, school, uh, the church shooting. Uh, I believe it was 2020. Um, and there was the guy who uh, it was famous because the NRA instructor uh, who was present um, was able to eliminate the threat prior to him doing any more damage. But the video, they have it all on video. It happened, in, the whole shooting took less than five seconds and three people were dead. So when you think about 90 seconds, that's an eternity. And even if you go and you listen to any sort of podcast where you have police officers who've actually been in firearm-related incidents, whether it's shootings or uh, actual pursuits or even just rough-and-tumble fights, right? They talk about how 30 seconds takes forever to occur. And so when you talk about a minute or a minute and a half, that's just the time the police are in the car. That doesn't mean that they've gotten out of the car and entered the building. And in Uvalde, it was over an hour the police stood outside the building 
because uh, of their up the chain of command, their upper staff were telling them to stage rather than to enter. And that's when uh, when uh, this guy from uh, this guy, uh, Jacob Alvarado and uh, the rest of the uh, border police who uh, showed up at the scene entered the building against the, lo- the local law enforcement's uh, recommendations or orders. So we have these situations where you have a, a whole bunch of time where the shooters are completely, they have, they're, they're able to do whatever they want and whatever their evil desires may be, basically uh, uninhibited by any sort of meaningful defense. Now, look, you can talk about different types of uh, things like bulletproof glass, or you can enter into the situations where you have lockdown rooms, um, where you have automatic locks and things like that. And yes, those things can be effective. And it's actually been, there's been a couple of different studies that talk about um, uh, what has saved some people's lives, um, especially if you you look at uh, Columbine. There was rooms of students who uh, survived in some rooms that didn't. And uh, some of that had to do with, um, did they properly barricade the door? Um, did they have, uh, did they use proper measures to, to keep, uh, to offer enforcement or offer any sort of resistance to the shooters? Now, when we talk about this, there's a lot of different strategies and we actually do uh, mass shooter training um, as part of Oxus. Uh, platform. So we work with schools and, and churches and other uh, organizations to help them plan for these incidents. And there's many things we can go into depth about. Um, basically, it just comes down to, uh, if you look at uh, stuff by uh, the Department of Homeland Security, um, they have a course that's very basic and doesn't call for all the things you need to know, but at least gives you a good uh, a good kind of starting point. Uh, and that's a, uh, they, they call it run, hide, fight. Now, I think that there's there's much more uh, depth that we can go into here, but basically, run, hide, fight is the idea that it is that if there is a mass shooting occurring, you run, you get out of the building, you get out of wherever it is as fast as you possibly can. If you can't do that, then you hide, and if you can't uh, escape by hiding, then you have to fight. And they talk about, and then you can learn different strategies for how to do that. And uh, if you look at Columbine in the upper level rooms, um, they had, uh, I believe it was 10 different classrooms that were upstairs that, uh, that were um, under uh, siege by the shooters. And some of the rooms provided resistance by blocking up the doors. And as soon as the doors were tested by the shooters, they're into soft targets and they know that they have a short amount of time. And so what they do is they go and they, if they encounter resistance, they just leave that one and they go to the next one where they encounter less resistance. And so that's what happens with shooters. They realize that they have a short amount of time and that they need to get as much as they possibly can. And so what they do is they, they, if there's a hard target, there's something that uh, prevents them from having easy access. They don't sit there and try to figure out. They move on to the next one so that they can maximize their uh, their level of destruction. So when we're talking about all this stuff. There's just a little bit of background there. Um, I hope this has been somewhat interesting. Um, what I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to inform uh, the audience about what the history is of the laws that are in place, and then give some some just critical thoughts about why the situation is as it is. Um, now. If I take it on a personal point, I try to keep this podcast as as apolitical as possible, but there's some things where it's very difficult to do so. when, When you have a policy that is just so broken that it is basically irreparable, and then you have additional policies that are of the same vein then being proposed because the former 
irreparable policy is irreparable. So they say that, well, we keep having these shootings and they keep getting bigger and bigger and more frequent. So let's just make these same policies even stronger. So we're going to take these zero weapons tolerance policies and then we're going to make them statewide or we're going to take them and we're going to try to propose it on a federal level. Now, I don't think any of that is going to occur federally, um, but on a statewide basis, it definitely could happen uh, in certain states. And so what we're looking at is we're looking at this situation where we, we have policies that don't work and that have dire consequences and then we have policies that have made those problems worse. And then we try to propose greater versions of those same policies and uh, as, as a method of trying to patch up the problems that have been created by the former ones. And so it's just this loop of, of irrationality that doesn't actually do what it needs to do. You can't bring a knife to a gunfight. And if you don't allow legal students, uh, legal people, if you don't allow responsible people, I should put it that way, if you don't have allow responsible people to ha- get proper education and to be able to properly advance, a th- advance against a, th- a threat, then you're not going to actually be able to do anything at all. Um, the police are wonderful and I respect them and I thank them for their service and everything that they do, but they can't be everywhere at once. And so when we're talking about school shootings, it's all about being able to actually have people there to counter the threat in short order. And when I say short order, I mean less than 30 seconds. We have to have a situational plan that's able to uh, take care of the threat. Now, we can talk about uh, church shootings and we can talk about uh, other related incidents uh, as we move forward in the future. But I did want to give you also just a little bit of hope um, because there's a story that surfaced uh, a month or two ago. And you probably actually saw it, but it was a particular thing that was really interesting to me. And it brought to mind a different solution other than um, what is typically proposed. So um, a lot of people who are more Second Amendment friendly will propose that, well, we should uh, be we should be enforcing we should first of all repeal the gun free school zones um uh, the uh act but not the act itself but like i explained earlier we should reach repeal that piece of the no child left behind uh act that uh restricts federal funding from public schools if they don't have no weapons policies so we should get rid of that but beyond that what they say is that we should actively encourage teachers to start carrying in uh schools and stuff like that and i honestly don't know if that's a good solution um Part of it is just because I'm not sure about uh, is because the caliber of person uh, is is sometimes questionable, uh, depending on on the place and uh, the affiliation and some other things. And and part of that is just my personal thought. But what I would say is that personally, I would argue for um, the enabling of people to take proper precautions through proper certification. I think that uh, having a concealed carry, allowing uh, teachers to take concealed carry permit licenses, classes, and classes, and then using and then using that proper uh, license to carry on campus is a something that should be considered. But one thing that happened in Louisiana really gets to the heart of what we're dealing with, and a, a whole other solution um, that that we're dealing with. There's a particular school that was in. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. But it was in Louisiana. Um, I want to say Shreveport, but I'm not sure if I'm even saying that place right. Um, but basically, they had in, over a three day period. Uh, they had 23 different students arrested for fights. And uh, it, it finally came around to the point where the local community said, enough, we can't do this anymore, this is ridiculous. And the dads in the local community 
Um, this is in a primarily black community, which uh, suffers from a huge amount of fatherlessness. Um, 40 dads who were in the vicinity uh, started their own group to just be at the school all day for uh, the uh, during school. And so what these guys do is they set up in shifts and they have one or two guys at the school at all times and then they shift off, they switch off shifts throughout the week. What that did, and this has been uh, over a few months ago now that when they first started doing this, since then, there have been zero reported fights on the campus. Zero. Not one. Uh, the students seem to love it. There's different quotes from the students that say that they, uh, that uh, the, the guys, that while they're there, will joke with the students. They'll you know, do typical dad jokes like, hey, your shoe's untied, even though it's not. You know, Do other stuff like that just to you know, make you look. And that, that, kind of, um, that, that fatherly influence within the school has made a big difference as far as uh, conflicts and how they're dealt with. And then you have these guys who are able to be enforcers as well. Uh, in the situation that, that anything does start to rub the wrong way. And so that would be the other solution I would look at is I would say that the public school system, generally speaking, has become this huge administrative state. Um, I earlier, probably a little bit, uh, well, I, earlier I compared it to, I, I talked about how schools are becoming more like prisons than they are educational institutions. And part of that is because these teachers are all... Uh, it, while I admire what they do, they are, at the very base of it, uh, federal employees. They work for the Department of Education. Um, a lot of them are also union, which is a whole other topic. Um, but they are federal employees, and they are not there to be defensive agents. They're there to teach math or, or to teach science or to teach whatever. Their job is not to be a security guard. And so when we look at what the situations could be, the situation could just say that we need to start using more, uh, more influence of dads in the local community in the schools. Perhaps there's other ways that we could do that. Um, the thing is, is that uh, that would be a hard thing to start to, uh, to start to put into place because you have to, uh, that would be a massive organization effort. So I applaud these guys who are willing to step up in Louisiana and, uh, and do this job to protect them, their students. And I hope that there's another way that we could resolve this in the future, perhaps by modeling the system after them. Uh, and that would be an ideal situation to me because that brings in this external, that this brings in this external force that helps us to counteract the situation before it begins. And that's ultimately what ultimately, what really pays off is that if we can prevent the situation, then that's the best course of action in the first place. Now the laws, like I said, I don't think they work. Um, we've seen that they don't work. Uh, the, the militaristic solution of, well, let's turn every school teacher into a proto-military activist, uh, I, that's a bad idea in my opinion as well. So finding the middle line there where we can bring in the community developments and bring in the people who are invested in the people within the school and have them take part in this is where it really matters. And that's what I would advocate for over the long-term period, and I think that that's the most effective solution. 
But uh, we'll see what happens. I, I really hope that uh, something changes in the next few years um, in the legislation, and that uh, these more uh, these more radical uh, gun control policies are uh, are deemed ineffective because they've been shown to be, and that we can go from there. But thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate. It. Hopefully, I was able to provide some sort of substantive um, thoughts on this, and that you guys enjoyed listening. Um, if you guys would like to uh, get better and get more involved with um, our company, Oxus, um, if you'd like to do some private training, or if you're looking for uh, some consulting purposes, um, what we do is we basically take people who once become ra- uh, responsible, stu- uh, responsible su- students of defense, and we teach defensive education. So we help people um, wherever they need to fill in blank spots in their knowledge and abilities for their current situation. We try to stay away from one size fits all programs. What we do instead is we meet with you, we talk with you, we figure out what's best for your situation and develop it from there. It could be that you are a security person who works for a church, right? Um, We work with several churches in our area and we're looking to expand that as well. So if you work, uh, if you go to a church and you're like, okay, we need to figure out uh, how we're going to secure our premises so that we don't have a problem that is similar to what has happened in Whitechapel and other places and other churches. Um, we help organize those programs, both from a, uh, a financial perspective. We work with uh, churches to help figure out what works for their budget. Um, we also help them to train their uh, security team members so that we can help them to understand what being a responsible person looks like in this regard in defensive education terms. Um, we don't want to turn people into proto-military activists um, or what we call tactical timmies. What we would rather do is we want to teach people how to be practically tactical and responsible and reasonable. Uh, ultimately, that's what it comes down to. And so if you're interested in increasing your knowledge, we'd love to talk with you. Um, we have a new way through our website that you can set up a consultation. All you do is go to our website, oxus.llc. And then if you go to our website there, um, you'll find a thing where uh, or a link where it tells you uh, you can go and check out our private, uh, private training. And you can uh, sign up for a 15-minute consultation through there. In particular, you just go to oxus.llc. You go to private education programs. There'll be a drop down that just says schedule a consultation and then you can go through there schedule a free consultation with us and then we'll be glad to talk with you so we can figure out what best fits your needs and how we can organize everything uh, around what we uh, around what you need for your situation so thank you guys so much for listening i really hope that you enjoyed this and i'm looking forward to any sort of discussion feel free to comment um, or leave any of your thoughts um, there's i know there's a new comments feature on spotify um, which is one of the places where this is released and uh, then we'll go from there thank you so much and have a great rest of your day